From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. Thanks for joining us. Americans are still weighing in on this week's uh, chaotic presidential debate that for most of the 90 minutes didn't seem very presidential at all. President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden clashed in heated exchanges over health care, taxes, a coronavirus, the Supreme Court, racial protests. Uh, it was difficult to watch at times, also cringeworthy at times. But the debate also highlighted the risk of a contested election in November. Here to break down the moments that mattered for the economy and the markets is Ben Colton, Senior Research Analyst at Beacon Policy Advisors. Ben, good to have you on the podcast again. Um, I want to start with this CBS Snap poll that was taken right after the, the debate. It found nearly 70% of Americans were annoyed by the debate. So my question is, do you think it did anything at all to move the needle for those voters who were undecided heading into the debate? Thanks, Alexis. I mean, there was actually a major spike in the Google search for the debate for moving the presidential debate ever. But there's just such a small margin of who are the undecided voters compared to four years ago. When you look at the polling uh, at the first night of the debate in 2016, the combined vote share between Trump and Hillary Clinton was 83.4%. This time, and, and Clinton was ahead by about 1.2 points. This time, heading into the debate yesterday, the combined vote share of Trump and Joe Biden was 93.4%, and Joe Biden had a seven-point lead. And so there's just less room for... Um, undecided voters who are, who are looking in. There was one poll that showed that of the percent of likely voters in battleground states who are watching the debate, only 6% were looking to decide who to vote for, while the others were looking to decide how their candidate was doing or just for entertainment value. And I, I think that you know, for, for a race where Trump is losing by a deficit larger since Bob Dole was losing to Bill Clinton in, in 1996, that this did not change the dynamics or the trajectory of the race. Hey guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Ben, I'm gonna push back on that a little bit um, for a couple of reasons. First, um, if there are in fact six percent of voters undecided, and and that's in the range that most um, polls suggest, um, that's a that's an important margin, even if it's a lot smaller than it was at this point in 2016 or in prior races. Uh, I mean, we know that one percentage point going toward Biden or Trump in some of the swing states could actually be, determine the outcome of the election. And um, another factor is just getting people out to vote. I mean, there probably are people who um, sort of tepidly support both Trump and Biden and are considering whether to even vote. So um, it seems to me this this type of stuff matters a little bit more that, that those margins actually, uh, even if they're smaller than they have been in past elections, they actually could be quite important. Sure. I mean, in a close election, even the, the smallest margin or changes can make a di big difference. Um, but what we're seeing, you know, in, in this race where, where Biden still holds a pretty sizable advantage, seven points nationally, that, you know, when, when we see, like, what are the defining moments of the campaign? You know, we saw maybe those debates. You know, there's a lot of different moments. There was the COVID. There was the recession. There was impeachment. There was... There was the, the, the historic racial unrest. And you know, now there's the Supreme Court confirmation. All these seem like tenable things that could shift the margins. But when you look at the polling in January 2020, Joe Biden was ahead by six to eight points. When you look at the polling uh, in March 14th, which was after Super Tuesday um, and right before COVID, Joe Biden was ahead by six to eight points. And now you're here 34 days ahead of uh, November 3rd, 
and the margin is six to eight points. And so there's a remarkable steadiness in this historically remarkable year that you know, votes are, are large. And yes, there's maybe about a 6%, but you know, at the, you know, in, in, 20, in 2012, uh, all the races that Barack Obama was trailing by, was behind, wasn't uh, supporting 46%, didn't get support by 46%, he lost. And all the states where he's getting support by 48%, he won in the polling. And right now, Donald Trump is below 48% in all the battleground states. And he's below 46% in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. And losing those states costs him the, the electoral college. And so what is, his, what is his way to kind of move those marginal votes to his end? And it's trying to kind of broaden his base or make Joe Biden acceptable. But the problem is that one of the defining features of Trump's campaign in the general election is his attempt to run against the opponent he wishes he had or used to have, not his actual opponent. You know, Joe Biden isn't Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden isn't Hillary Clinton. And that was abundantly clear during that debate. You know, Trump's case is that Biden and the Democrats represent a radical left threat to America. And he tried to go Biden into that and to try to peel away support that he's getting from the suburbs and a lot of white voters in the upper Midwest. But, you know, Biden didn't take the bait. And, you know, this, this debate made abundantly clear that, you know, there's a, a sustainable coalition, especially in the upper Midwest and the Rust Belt states of white college educated voters and white working class voters that, you know, the margins are better than, than Clinton from four years ago. And that's the whole ball game. If Trump can't convince those marginal voters to come out on his side, then it, it's hard to see um, Trump kind of eating into Biden's edge. So my, what I'm wondering is if um, ordinary voters who were watching last night, if they actually got that message. So what I noticed, I, I mean, I've been immersed in Biden's policies for more than a year because I cover this, uh, Ben, so have you. And so I, I perked up when I heard Joe Biden say things like, I don't support the Green New Deal. I thought that was an important statement for him to make. And he actually distanced himself from the progressive side of the party that does support the Green New Deal. He he said, uh, I don't support Medicare for all. I'm not Bernie Sanders. He, he did get a chance to say what his health plan is. So the, he, to my mind, he did get the opportunity to establish himself as a moderate. The question I have is whether voters heard that amid all the shouting. I think what they heard amid all the shouting, you know, Biden did not have his Rick Perry oops moments. He didn't have the Al Gore sighing. He didn't have George H.W. Bush looking at his at his watch, there was no affect that kind of confirmed the concerns that, you know, that maybe Biden campaign has or that Trump's trying to portray as, as Biden as someone who is just out of step, that he is not uh, cognitively all there, um, and that, you know, he's just going to be a pawn for the radical left. And, you know, that was the, the, the main goal of kind of for Trump's camp, for Trump's uh, uh, debate strategy. But, you know, the, the takeaway from the debate was, again, all about Trump. And Biden was just a secondary focus in the debates. And that just kind of reinforces that this is a referendum election, unlike four years ago, and that Joe Biden is a largely acceptable alternative for a majority of voters. Now, he's not beloved by the left, but the antip antipathy for Trump is, is much greater. And he's acceptable by a lot of kind of like independent white voters who aren't kind of, who aren't in tune with the culture wars that, that Trump tries to portray. And he's also has the support of a lot of senior voters who are a crucial demographic in whether that's Florida or in many kind of the Rust Belt states. And so in terms of kind of just changing the dynamic, you know, Biden, you know, he didn't have a stellar debate, but that wasn't the goal. His, 
his goal was to kind of keep this a referendum on Trump. And, you know, what we're talking about a lot of the time after this debate is kind of Trump's comments and, and Trump's style. And that, I think, is, is a loss for Trump and a lost opportunity. You know, there were several moments throughout the debate when Trump did try to align Biden with probably the candidate he does want to be up against, as you said earlier, which is a Bernie Sanders. He tried to radicalize um, Biden, especially when it came to health care, trying to tie him to Bernie Sanders, quote unquote, manifesto, you know, and 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 Biden said, I'm no Bernie Sanders and there is no manifesto. Do you think that Trump failed in trying to paint Biden as this progressive left candidate? Yes, he did. And that's been kind of the crux of the entire general election campaign is that, you know, Joe Biden, he, the defining moment of kind of the, the campaign uh, of 2020, despite all the historic events, was Super Tuesday on on of this year when Joe Biden became the clear front runner in the Democratic nomination over Bernie Sanders. You know, the Trump campaign had this ready to go a campaign against Bernie Sanders and the radical left, but Joe Biden just doesn't fit that mold. Um, you know, there's many things his age about his kind of lack of an ideology and about his kind of closeness in, in Washington, but. You know, that's not what kind of the campaign that, that Trump is focusing on radical up. And it just, it's falling flat um, at the debate. And it's been falling pain to kind of tie Biden as a radical leftist. Now, four years ago, interestingly, voters saw Trump as the mo more moderate of the two between um, uh, him and Hillary Clinton. This year, Joe Biden is seen as the more moderate. And that plays well, and especially kind of in this coalition that Biden's making with kind of white suburban voters, independent voters, and, and senior voters who see Biden, even before COVID, even before the general campaign, as just someone who is more known, who's more moderate, who's more kind of uh, more honest and trustworthy. And I think this debate just reinforced that, you know, these attacks as Biden's a radical leftist just isn't, isn't uh, working with kind of the coalition that Trump needs to win uh, in, in 2020. There's one issue that our audience cares about a lot that um, came up last night, um, but the they shouting just overwhelmed any meaningful discussion of this. And this is uh, the Trump tax cuts. Biden did say, I will eliminate the Trump tax cuts. And Biden did say, I want to push the uh, corporate tax rate from 21% back to 28%. And Trump said, uh, here's what Trump said. Um, you want to terminate my tax cuts? I'll tell you what. Half of the companies that have poured in here will leave and plenty of companies that are already here, they'll leave for other places. They'll leave and you'll have a depression. Um, so tr Trump is trying to say that if the corporate tax rate goes up by half of where it used to be, we're going to have a depression. Um, I guess uh, I, I would have liked to hear uh, Biden actually answer that. He didn't get a chance to answer that. Do you think he does need to answer that, Ben? Do you think uh, you know, people who might vote for him are sufficiently concerned about that, that he needs to better explain what he wants to do with the Trump tax cuts. This has been a major concern of the Biden campaign, that despite him in kind of the high single digits pulling ahead of Trump, you know, Trump has consistently had high economic approval ratings and beat Biden when it comes to like who can best handle the, the economy and the economic recovery. And so Biden has made a concerted effort to kind of channel his Scranton Joe roots of kind of providing an alternative to like Trump's America First platform, which is this build back better. And, you know, Biden, who was once very much a deficit hawk, has kind of has kind of said no to that. And he's kind of released this, this vast economic agenda, not quite, you know, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, but one where like uh, spending would be 
in the five to seven trillion dollar range over over the next decade. But at the same time, there'd be an increase in tax uh, taxes in the three to four trillion dollar range. And so I think for Biden, his goal, and he's actually seen some success in narrowing the margin on who can best handle the economy, is to provide a vision of what does it mean to have Biden in the White House? What does it mean to have Democrats in control of the Senate? And, you know, that's kind of, you're seeing that play out in a lot of independent economic analysis. There was some economic analysis coming out last week from movies that showed that the highest economic growth and the highest job increase would come from a sweep of Democrats winning in November. That's from Biden and from Democrats winning the Senate, whereas the, the lowest economic growth and the lowest jobs uh, increase would come from uh, a Republican sweep and that somewhere in the middle is divided government. And so kind of Biden is trying to make the forceful case of like a, a populist economic approach, which includes a lot of spending, a lot of focus on manufacturing, but also increasing taxes on corporations from 21 to 28 uh, percent, increasing the, the top tax rate on, on individuals and other kind of trying to close kind of a corporate loopholes um, that is seen as unfair in, in an age where kind of populism and anti-corporate um, uh, fear mongering is kind of uh, much more prevalent than it was even just four years ago. You know, we saw, we heard um, Biden come out and name Scranton once again, talking about the working class. He's He's been appealing to that voter for a long time. But what about the black vote? They came out in record numbers, the black community in 2012 for Obama. Uh, really sank though in 2016. I mean, there were overall record numbers of people voting in 2016, but the black community didn't contribute a heck of a lot to that. Based on this first presidential debate, did either candidate help their cause, I guess, when it came to trying to secure the black vote in this country? I don't think so. I, I think you're, you're right that this is you know, a critical voting block for Democrats, and especially that they, they did not come out notoriously in Wisconsin in 2016, uh, which led to kind of Trump, for Clinton losing Wisconsin. And they also didn't come out to the same margins for Clinton that, that they did for Obama, which cost, which cost her the state of Virginia and, and Michigan. And I think this is kind of one of Biden's biggest struggles is how do you appeal to um, black voters or even Latino voters who, especially the younger sets, um, who just aren't, who aren't for Biden's kind of old timer demeanor, his kind of establishment credentials. And I, I think that they're, they're struggling, that they're just going to assume that, you know, this is, they're going to come out in full because they, they dislike Trump, but they don't really have an effective strategy right now for targeting kind of that younger demographic. And, and that right now is, is very critical in a lot of these these states, even if they don't have as large of a percentage um, of the vote share as white voters. And so you're seeing kind of, uh, you're seeing Donald Trump really trying to make an effort to say, you know, he's the best president since Abraham Lincoln or even greater than Abraham Lincoln for black voters. And he's really focusing on kind of Cuban voters in Florida um, and focusing on things like opportunity zones. Um, and, you know, this does seem like the polling has shown voters than, than four years ago. But the challenge here is that, you know, his, he's been offset by an even greater degree of his, his loss of, of white voters or the margin with white voters. Um, so kind of moving forward, you know, it's for, for Biden, it's trying to kind of coalesce that, that, that group, but also trying to figure out to make sure that they vote. And, you know, they're one of the most disenfranchised uh, groups who, who vote, black voters. And we're seeing kind of with like, the problems with vote by mail, um, absentee voting and just kind of voting in person that we saw with the pandemic and the primaries and that we're seeing right now is that you know, even if Biden is able to kind of increase his margins a bit or increase the voter turnout, there can be a higher kind of uh, 
tossing of the ballot rates of, of disenfranchised vote because of kind of the complexity of vote by mail. And that's, I think, a big concern of the Biden campaign moving forward. You know, I'm um, amused by Trump trying to scare everybody in the suburbs. Um, I live in the suburbs. I'm sitting in the suburbs right now. It's not mayhem for anybody who might be wondering. Um, Trump, I, so my question here is whether Trump, this is, there's any chance uh, this this uh, strategy of scaremongering among suburbanites could work. Um, just basically to go back again to what Trump said uh, in the in the first debate. If Biden ever got to run this country, uh, we would have uh, our suburbs would be gone, and you would see problems like you've never seen before. And then uh, Biden, of course, said, "Man, you couldn't find the suburbs unless you took a wrong turn. Uh, this is not 1950. All these dog whistles and racism don't work anymore." I, I guess the question in all of this is, does, is there any chance that Trump is going to gain like even one suburban vote by trying to convince suburbanites that if Joe Biden becomes president, we're going to have low income housing everywhere in the suburbs and life's going to be terrible out here? I actually think that, you know, yes, there is a, a chance that that could help, but I think not in the way that Trump is hoping for. I think one of the trends of, you know, American electoral politics over the past three decades is the growing cultural divide between urban, suburban, and rural America. And there was kind of a, a you know, the sub suburbia, however you call, define it, is not a monolith. Um, you know, there's a kitschy way of, of looking at it through kind of the Whole Foods versus Cracker Barrel divide. You know, in 2016, Trump won, I believe, 76% of counties with a Cracker Barrel and just 22% of counties with a Whole Foods. And that's a 54% gap. Now, in 1992, the Democratic versus Republican divide in those same counties was just 19%. So, you know, I think what Trump is doing with the suburbs here and, you know, with kind of the racial dog whistles is he's looking to kind of exacerbate this divide by turbocharging his base and seeking to make the culture wars front and center to the campaign. But, you know, Biden has been making inroads with Trump's base of white working class voters, particularly in the, in the Rust Belts. And, you know, maybe uh, Trump's kind of uh, dog whistle and suburban focus may have a, a a more impactful effect of kind of white suburbia in the South and in the Appalachia region, but that's different than kind of the suburbia of the, the upper, upper Midwest. And I think in the upper Midwest, what you're seeing, you know, you know, Trump's success there was not because he was kind of this cultural conservative or things like that. It was because he was this independence outsider alternative to Hillary Clinton. And, but they're not the ones who are kind of like really receptive to kind of these, these arguments. And I think they're, they're more, they're more okay with kind of Biden's more calm demeanor as, as an alternative. And they don't view kind of this the suburban suburbia going to anarchy as, as really uh, evident, um, unlike maybe in kind of more Southern suburbs, as really uh, evident, um, unlike maybe in kind of more Southern suburbs. How much does, does the economy matter for voters now? I mean, during the debate, Joe Biden called out Trump saying that he had tanked the economy. But was that really fair? I mean, we were in the middle of a pandemic. We had a we were forced to lock down our our economy. And then Trump came back and said, listen, if it were up to Biden, you know, there'd be lockdowns once again. And, and Trump was talking about how he wanted to start opening up the country, how it was unfair to keep the country on lockdown. In some ways, it seemed as though Biden was sort of wanting it both ways uh, during the debate, calling out Trump for locking down the economy, but saying that in order to react to the virus effectively, you needed to lock down the economies, right? So which is it? 
Yes, I mean, I, I think that's a point that, you know, Trump campaign and a lot of Republicans uh, in Capitol Hill want to hammer home that, you know, if Republicans and Trump are focusing on this great American comeback where they're trying to reopen the economy and that they have a plan and that, you know, the economy beforehand was very good, they see this as a winning issue. They saw that as a winning issue in the 2018 midterms. But the problem is that Trump is very focused on his Fox News audience. He's very focused on these cultural issues because he believes that's what made him win in, in 2016. And to a degree, that, that's, that's true. But in 2018, when he focused on kind of these caravans of immigrants coming from coming from Central America, that, that didn't play well with the suburbs. He, there was a blue wave in 2018. And we're seeing this right now. It's just that, that Trump's um, ability to stay on message of the economy and to kind of say like, you know, this is my strong point. I'm gonna focus on this. I'm gonna make a contrast to, to Biden. It's just not, he doesn't have the, the temerity. He doesn't have the, 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 the wherewithal to keep focusing on that message because he doesn't believe that that is what charges up his base. Um, and so, you know, if there is like a greater focus, I think that's one of the more upsides of saying, what's Trump's path to victory? Because he's clearly an underdog right now. But let's say, you know, the economy, there's a strong jobs number, uh, consumer confidence improves, there's a, a big GDP, three quarter GDP number. If these are things that, that Trump can focus on, you know, then he could maybe build up his, his economic uh, basis of support or people who support him in the economy but don't support him overall and his job approval can maybe be persuaded that, you know, this is a clear alternative that, that Trump is providing um, compared to Biden, who looks like he wants to shut things down or just kind of be in this crisis mentality. Um, but so far in this campaign, and we, I think we saw clearly in the debate is that maybe that's a, a focus for, for, for one moment, but it's just overwhelmed by everything else and all kind of the other chaos in kind of the debate and the campaign. Uh, I'll ask both of you guys. We're going to have two more debates. Apparently, they will go on, even though some people say uh, Biden should refuse. Um, I think Trump's strategy in the first debate just completely failed. Uh, he may have pleased his uh, base by attacking Biden and continually interrupting and just being combative and obnoxious. But um, I just I, I, I don't think that helped him at all with the things he needs to do, which is, um, um, you know, he's basically he's behind and he needs to. Um, get some support and convince more people to support him. I just don't think he did it. So the question is, do you guys think he'll just he'll he'll uh, behave the same way in the next two debates, or do you think he'll try something new? You know, I I would have to think knowing Trump the way we know him now, I don't imagine he would change his tactic no matter how many people tell him he should, including his own strategist. And and I don't, I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I'm not so sure the bullying turned a lot of people off. Certainly, it probably invigorated his base. Um, and, 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 in, and many times during the night, I thought he just steamrolled right over Biden, although I thought Biden held his own somewhat. Um, I think if you had to declare a winner, which is tough, because I actually think the American people were the ones who lost during that debate, uh, I, you might have to give it to, to, to Trump, but I'm probably in the minority amongst the three of us. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, from an outsider perspective, it's a high risk high reward strategy in order to kind of come back. Um, that was certainly a risk strategy, but it didn't seem like the reward paid off. But I think an important thing to consider is that Trump believes he's winning. And that may be, that may be a facade, but I think that's generally true that he talks to advisors when he talks to his supporters, he always says, again, when, when you look at the, poll, the public polling, what he calls like fake news, fake polls, you're always supposed to add 10 points to his polling. And that's what the real indicator is of kind of where he's standing. And so I generally believe that Trump thinks that you know his strategy for 2020, which is similar to his strategy for 2016, 
is a successful one and that he's winning and that any indication that he's losing or when the vote com comes out, that it's something of he was rigged, that the media is against him, that there's a lot of voter fraud and that he's going to try to spin away to say that, you know, I, the, the election was stolen from him. So I don't think he's going to change strategies. I think he's going to kind of be his, his own self that he believes gets high ratings and appeals to the Fox News base. Um, and when when the rock name comes, maybe he, maybe this will be a comeback. But if he, if he loses, or if the kind of the votes don't turn out, then you know he's just going to claim that there was voter fraud and that you know he really did win, but the Democrats stole it. Yeah, well, look, the next uh, debate is October fifteenth, so mark it on your calendars. Let's hope a little more substance happens there. We could hear the candidates; and they don't talk over each other quite so. I much. can't wait. You can't. I know. I, I mean. Definitely the theatrical okay. aspect, the entertainment aspect, as Ben put it earlier in the podcast, uh, to it all. So I want to thank Ben Colton of Beacon Policy Advisors for joining us. Thank you all for being with us. Be sure to rate and review what you just heard and saw. And you can follow me at Alexis TV News. And me at Rick J. Newman. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. <laughs>